I'm Arthur Falls, and today on the Internet Computer Weekly, we have Manu Drivers of the Definity Foundation. And today, Manu, I really wanted to talk about how intersubnet communication takes place. Now, we've heard this term chain key cryptography over and over and over. What I'd like to do is rather than talk about chain key cryptography, actually just map out the process of sending and validating a message from one subnet to another. Does that sound like something that would be up in your neck of the woods? I guess the details are maybe very hard, but I think the use cases are actually pretty understandable. I think actually, while the technicals are the thing that people really want to hear, because it's one thing to see a video explaining it, but it's another thing to participate in a collaborative conversation and nut out those difficult bits that you just don't quite get. But before we do that, how did you get involved with Definity? So I was doing my PhD in cryptography at IBM Research and ETH Zurich. And I was basically getting towards the end of that. I was just about to finish things. And then it turned out that the Definity Foundation was going to open up a research center and open up an office in Zurich. And actually, even some of my IBM colleagues were going to move over there as well. So that was a very easy choice for me. Yeah, that was a very exciting next step for me. And have you found it rewarding being there? I mean, I know you're just going to say yes, but I'm kind of interested in like, you know, what the experience has been. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously it was very rewarding. So I guess if you're doing a PhD, you do very interesting work and you can look into cool cryptographic protocols and things like that. But it's always harder to get like adoption, right? So it's a bit theoretical and it might take years or decades if ever the world is going to actually use it, right? And what's really cool about Affinity is that we have a lot of technical challenges, right? A lot of very challenging work and problems we need to solve. And then we're going to run it in practice, right? And this makes the internet computer and people are going to build stuff on top of it. And that's, of course, super motivating and exciting. Awesome. Okay, well, let's dive right into the thick of it then. How does communication between one subnet and another take place? I think one first thing to realize is that Canisters live on different subnets, right? That's for scaling. And each subnet is its own blockchain. So you can imagine that this communication between subnet is a bit more difficult than if everything would be one gigantic blockchain. What we do is that every subnet has its own public key. It has one single public key. That's what we call this chain key technology. And this public key, of course, has a corresponding secret key. But that corresponding secret key is not known by any one party or entity. Instead, each replica that powers the subnet has a share of that secret key. Means that more than two-thirds of the replica powering the subnet must have signed that message or must have contributed to signing that message. So basically, if you see anything signed under the chain key of a subnet, you can consider it as the whole subnet agreed that that thing is good, that that message must have been signed. And now this we can use to allow subnets to communicate with each other. So one subnet that has a canister on it that wants to send a message to another canister on another subnet, what would happen is that something in the blockchain triggers this canister, right? So some type of message calls this canister. And now this canister wants to call some other canister on a different subnet. Now we cannot do that immediately, right? So this is going to be like an asynchronous call. One way to look at this is like the actor model where Everything is asynchronous communication between actors. So one canister knows that it wants to call a different canister on a different subnet. And this is sort of stored 
in the state of the subnet for the time being. So basically it says, I made this call and I'm waiting for an answer. And now the chain key technology comes in. So this part of the state, we always put signatures on. So every time that there is some new change there, we put such a signature on it. It's a threshold BLS signature if you're interested in the details. And now anybody with that, that basically is evidence that this subnet and therefore that canister really wanted to call that other canister because the whole subnet agrees on it, right? And now another subnet, in particular, like the block maker, whenever we try to add blocks to the blockchain, it will not just look for messages from users that we want to process and put in the blockchain, but also from input from other subnets. So it will reach out to replicas from other subnets and it can just talk to just any one or a random one. And they might now say, oh yeah, actually we have some stuff for your subnet. Here is the content and the corresponding signature. Right, so there's no trust there because this is all signed. So anybody can see that it's indeed authenticated by the whole subnet. And now these are messages that can be ordered in the blockchain, just like ingress messages coming from users. So this message makes it through consensus. And now the canister sees that call from the other canister and can respond. And via the same mechanism, a response can go back to the original subnet. And that way we have secure communication between canisters on different subnets. Does this mean that every single block, one subnet has to ask every other subnet if there's a message for it? You don't need to do that every block. You can just periodically ask people or some nodes could ask some other nodes. You could take into consideration which nodes are sort of close to you, right? Maybe you have in your own data center a node that powers a different subnet, then that communication is very cheap. And I guess here there are some trade-offs between like latency and throughput. This sounds profound because for this to work, you have to have such a symphony of coordinated events. You know, your subnet has to be interacting with all other subnets at at least some regular cadence that's going to affect the speed of inter-subnet communication or the latency of it anyway. But then also there has to be an awareness of, or I presume there is, an awareness of the geographical location of nodes on different subnets that is somehow available to all the other subnets, but with some degree of blinding. Am I kind of getting that right? What do you mean by blinding? Well, I would have thought that the geographical location of all of the replicas in a subnet is not public knowledge, right? I see. Well, I guess you can make up some information from the IP address or so, which gives you some hint of whether something is close or not, or at least in your data center, for example. I think what you're saying is mostly true, right? So you need some coordination. At the same time, what I think is important is that all we need is that the sending message is eventually picked up by the receiver for it to behave correctly. That's all we need. And now we can think about details like how quickly do we want it to go? Should I ping all the time or every 10 seconds or every five seconds? But at the end of the day, it works, right? This is a secure way for the different blockchains in the internet computer to communicate. And I think... That's already a very powerful thing, right? Because then we can have many blockchains and scale out. Right, and you can just tweak the configuration until you get the performance that you want. Yeah, I think at this point, I don't even know by heart, we have tens of subnets. If we would have thousands, I guess some things would change, right? Then maybe not all subnets talk to all other subnets, but maybe there's some type of overlay or some structure in there. Yeah, so there's some potential future improvements, I guess. Right. And I mean, I suppose this is the whole idea of the NNS is that upgrades to the system can be ongoing depending on the 
actual state of usage of the internet computer itself. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very useful tool that we have. Yeah, so the NNS can upgrade things at any time. And in particular, like only certain parts need to be compatible. And otherwise, it's actually relatively easy to make significant changes between replica versions. So the governance system by the community can change the internet computer pretty drastically and make it faster and better. And uh, yeah. And this also seems like quite a minimalist, passive solution where you're doing the bare minimum to facilitate this type of inter-subnet communication because you've only got to query, say right now, you know, 20 other subnets. Were there more than that, then there would be a reason to have some piece of infrastructure, say a queue or something like that for egress messages, right? Such things are already there. So there are some mechanisms already to put some ordering in these messages. So if one canister calls another canister twice, then the first message would always be processed before the second message would be processed and things like that. So there is already some queuing that would also allow for some type of load balancing and things like that. So I think some of the infrastructure is already there and can, of course, be further developed. It's starting to make sense because this is just one of those parts of the internet computer because there's so much to it. You can't know how the whole thing works, especially not at this stage. You know, it's not completely documented and trying to tease out some of these more magical bits and pieces is difficult. And also trying to find the little trade-offs that are hidden here and there. For example, for me, it gives me pause for consideration thinking about the ability to determine where replicas in a particular subnet are located, because if you can do that, you could actually do a targeted attack, on physical attack on one particular subnet that could have you know, a particular piece of software that you want to disrupt because you're one of the bad guys, right? But then I suppose there are absolutely blinding tools you could introduce. Say, for example, they communicated through some Tor-like protocol, but that would, of course, introduce latency and other performance issues. So all of these different qualities need to be balanced in the implementation, depending on the actual use that the internet computer is experiencing. Yeah, I think one interesting thing here is also that because we have many different subnets, you can have different styles of subnets, right? So you could imagine that at some point in the future, we would support some subnets that run completely over Tor, while others might be faster, but hide not as well where the replicas are. So there's another thing we can kind of circle right to the start of this conversation and look a little bit at the way this private key is shared among the replicas in a subnet. Threshold relay is the method for generating randomness that drives probabilistic slot consensus, which is the consensus system. And part of that involves all replicas having a share of a private key for a threshold key pair. And that the public key that that private key goes to is the chain key. Am I on the right track there? Yeah, that's exactly right. So really, it sounds to me like chain key cryptography just is derived from the way threshold relay works. It's not so much a new innovation so much as it's a consequence of threshold relay randomness generation. Not entirely. So so for this threshold relay, right, and the random beacon and things like that, we don't need that the key is constant. I guess that was also the case in the first iterations of the code. The public key was allowed to change over time. 
maybe first the two of us were a subnet and then we would share a key together and now somebody else comes in and then we would basically set up a new public key that we share with the three of us. And any change in membership would trigger a change in the public key. And I think the key innovation that we made since then, when we started calling it the chain key cryptography, is when we decided to keep this public key fixed at all times. So the magic is that first one set of replicas can share the secret key corresponding to one public key. And now later new replicas come in and some may go, right? We might change the membership of a subnet. But now the new members will end up sharing the same secret key corresponding to the fixed public key, but in a secure manner. Okay. Now that they have this piece of sensitive information and they're outside the network, can they then use that to somehow forge a signature? Yeah, so maybe we can walk through this example here. Suppose a secret key is a number between 0 and 10. Of course, numbers are bigger, right? So maybe the subnet secret key is 5. Now, if the two of us would be replicas on the subnet, then you could imagine that maybe you have secret key share six and I have nine or so. Okay. And they add up to five modulo 10. Okay. And now I guess you're convinced that your share six, it gives you no information at all about our secret key five, right? Because I mean, you don't know what my secret key share is. So you cannot do anything on your own. That's same for me, right? I have secret share nine. That doesn't tell me anything about five because I don't know your share. And now maybe over time, somebody else comes in and we're going to have a third replica. Now, what we want is that the secret keys is still five, but all of us should get fresh shares. So we basically do a new distribution of the secret. So maybe now you have secret share eight and I have three and the new replica has four. And now if I did that correctly, that still adds up to five. For the listeners, because this is something that would trip me up had I not had this same conversation a while ago, and I'm sort of recalling it. Modulo is when you add the numbers up, but then you start counting again when you get to 10, right? Exactly. We don't care about tens. We just care about the last digits, let's say. Now you can see the three of us have fresh secret key shares, but now your number that you had in the previous time interval, like you had this previous share at some point, that doesn't give you anything. You cannot combine that with the secret key share that you have now or with some secret key share that somebody else now has because they're different sharings and only adding up sharings from the same interval is actually useful. That means that these old members, of course, what we need is that any given time, a subnet is like majority honest, right? Or even two thirds honest. But if we change the membership, then if we had some bad members in the past and some bad members now, they cannot collude because they have pieces of the secret key from different sharings, and therefore they cannot add up to threaten the secret key. Okay, so now I'm really going to throw you in it, because we're talking now about the non-interactive distributed key generation. You know, this is hard to understand. So how does that happen in a non-interactive fashion? Okay, so in this non-interactive distributed key generation, or NIDKG, we set up either like a fresh secret key and give everybody such shares, or we might want to reshuffle an existing key and give everybody new shares of an existing secret. For one person, it's easy to do this. Let's talk about a new key for now. I can basically choose a part of a secret key and say, this is what I'm going to contribute to the secret key. I can split that into pieces and give each replica on the subnet a piece of the secret key that I chose so that they add up to the right corresponding secret that I'm dealing. 
But now, of course, this is difficult because you know only you should be able to view your share of the secret key, and on the other replica should only view their parts. So I actually need to encrypt those. So instead of sending those shares in the open, I send those in an encrypted form, so that only you can decrypt them. But at the same time, I must convince everybody that I actually followed all the rules, right? That these pieces that I'm encrypting actually add up to the secret that I'm sharing. And this is where it gets tricky. And so this is where a lot of zero-knowledge proofs comes in. So basically what I do is I can cryptographically convince everybody that I did this correctly, that this is all well-formed, and that if you were to decrypt your encryption, you would end up with a valid secret key share. And I can prove this all to anybody without revealing any of the actual secret information. But then you know, though, as the person who made it, then you know what the secret key is, the whole secret key. That's a very good point. So indeed. And that's why it's called distributed key generation. So we're not going to have one party do this, but everybody can do this. So everybody can add sort of randomness to the overall public key and secret key. And now maybe some of those dealers, some of those replicas that contribute might be malicious, right? And they might think, oh, I know a piece of the secret. But because there are many, hopefully many of them are doing a good job and give good randomness. And at the end, we add all the valid dealings up. We sort of squeeze them together. In some sense, they're homomorphic. So we can sort of add the secrets up, even though we don't know the secrets. And now the sum of that is actually very secure and no one replica knows the secret. Right, because you've done this a whole bunch of times, but no one knows what each other's one was. Exactly. Okay. Wow. You just explained the distributed key generation thing. Like, well, (laughs) I fully understand that, I feel. That's great. (laughs) That's so cool. Now, can we go through some of the other uses of this? How else is this employed or how else can this be used to do stuff? Yeah, so I think this concept of a single public key is useful in many areas. For example, imagine that you're a replica on a subnet, but you get very far behind. Like somehow my internet connection wasn't working for a week and now I need to catch up. This is a difficult problem, right? Because either you need to get like the full history of the subnet, like the full blockchain, everything that you missed. But because we want the internet computer subnets to go very fast, we might actually not want to store everything forever. Ideally, we can remove some old things that are no longer needed, such as the replica can use all its horsepower on processing new stuff. At the same time, this replica that was behind needs to be able to securely catch up and start helping out again. But within this time, maybe the membership of the subnet changed. Maybe new people are supposed to sign the artifacts and do the threshold relay and everything that you mentioned. So now as a replica that's behind, it would be very difficult to know how you can catch up to the latest state and what to trust. But because we have this chain key, this fixed public key, we know that this key always remains the same. So if the subnet signs artifacts saying like, oh, this is now the block that we're at and this is the state and things like that. And this is signed under a key that I still know and trust because this key represents the subnet. For a replica, it's very easy to catch up to the latest state and start contributing again, even if we might not want to store all artifacts forever. Okay, so all you need is just the current state and the signature. Pretty much, yeah. So, I mean, we have a special artifact for this that we call the catch-up package, but it boils down to a state and a block and a random beacon signed, uh, pretty much. And that's all you need to then securely jump to the latest state of a subnet and start contributing. Okay, 
And then I suppose when it comes to using this to communicate with other blockchains, what you can do is you can use a public key that's derived from the secret key of the subnet and use that for the other blockchain that you're communicating with. Have your, say, Ethereum smart contract there that you can access with that. Yeah, and I think if we actually take it a bit more generally, I think the other huge advantage of this chain key is just that it's very easy for anybody to verify anything from the internet computer. So with a lot of blockchains, the security comes from the fact that you have like a full blockchain that you verify each step of the way, that you somehow look out for other blockchains, that you see that you have the longest or the heaviest or the hardest. And in an internet computer, all you need is like this one small public key to securely get information from the internet computer. So if I'm a user and I know only this public key, I can securely query information from the internet computer, from subnets to get trustworthy answers for my canister smart contracts. And one particular use case of that is what you mentioned. You could think of writing some canister smart contract equivalent on a different blockchain, and that could just as easily verify things from the internet computer. I've learned so much in this half an hour. This has been an awesome catch-up package for me about how the internet computer works. <laughs> I feel sorry for the audience because <laughs> this has been a bit more focused on updating Arthur than it may be answering a list of questions so much. But the way Threshold Relay works, right, is you have your committee. The committee signs a piece of randomness. That randomness is used to select the next committee. We're talking about this for the beacon chain rather than the subnets. And then you have to select a new committee. There's epochs and stuff, I know, and it all gets a bit complicated. But that randomness, along with that, you're also signing blocks. Is that randomness signed in addition to signing a block every round? Or is that randomness like derived or stored in the block itself? The randomness is separate. So we actually have two things of randomness. We have the random beacon, which is what you refer to, right? Which is the randomness that we use inside our consensus algorithm. and say whose turn it is to make a block and things like that. This is a separate artifact. I guess we could sort of glue it to a block, but just the signature on the block would not be good, right? I guess the power of the random beacon is that while it's unpredictable, there's also only one right answer. So there's no room for any bias or for you know getting a random value that you like by some attack, because there is only one correct random beacon value because these signatures are deterministic. And that means that the random beacon is an unbiasable, unpredictable randomness. And if you were to sign, let's say, blocks and try to use that as randomness, then you open yourself up to some attacks where you can bias things because you can try to sign different blocks and then maybe see which signature gives you randomness that you like. I think I might not have any open questions personally about the internet computer all of a sudden. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I'm sure that'll help answer a lot of questions that people have because the stuff is just difficult to comprehend because it's technical and alien and you kind of have to hear it a bunch of times before you can truly make sense of it. You know what I mean? I agree. Yeah. Well, thanks, Manu. Is there anything else we should chat about? What's in the pipeline at the Definity Foundation these days? There's a lot going on, actually. So, yeah, I mean, we're still relatively young since launch, right? So I think a lot of things are going on. We're increasing the size. There's replicas are being added to the internet computer all the time. We're making new subnets or increasing the size of existing subnets. 
We're working on stability and performance. We're working on adding new features. So I think right now, or maybe it's already passed, there was this vote on increasing the canister storage, which is a new feature that we're adding. We've already communicated our plans to extend our chain key cryptography to support ECDSA signatures, which would allow for things like Bitcoin or Ethereum integration into the internet computer, because those systems use ECDSA signatures. A lot of things are going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, where to even begin? It'll give us some good fodder for the conversation. This has been fantastic, though. So thank you for coming on the show. And yeah, let's make a point of catching up again to dig into some of this more interesting stuff. Yeah, we'd love to. Thanks for having me, Arthur. No worries, mate. The Internet Computer Weekly has a sister newsletter featuring news, project updates, interesting tidbits and reading that come up over the course of the week. Together, they are part of a larger effort at ecosystem building we are calling the Cycle DAO. Visit cycledao.xyz to subscribe and learn more.